what do you do in terms of the reboot when the actual campus, in some cases almost virtually destroyed? Asking those questions now because a little bit of prevention can go a real long way. This is In the Know with ACCT, the voice of community college leaders. I'm Jacob Bray. Welcome back to In the Know with ACCT. On today's episode, Noah Brown interviews Andre LeDuc, who is the Chief Resilience Officer and Associate Vice President at the University of Oregon. This episode is focused on campus safety and security and serves as a prelude to our Governance Leadership Institute in Oregon from March 11th to the 13th. All right. Hello, everybody. This is Noah Brown, President and CEO of ACCT, joining you for another one of our ACCT In the Know podcasts. Uh, today's conversation uh, is going to focus on campus safety and security, and this is important. We have a Governance Leadership Institute uh, that we're working on uh, this coming March, March 11th through the 13th in Portland, Oregon, hosted by our partners, the Portland Community College. And uh, this is a very important topic, as you can imagine. And today, I'm, I'm pleased that I'm joined uh, by uh, Andre LeDuc, uh, who's working with us on uh, this Governance Leadership Institute. Uh, I think we met uh, for the first time uh, during our other security summit uh, a couple years ago in the wake of the Umpqua Community College shootings. So, Andre, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here and happy to, to discuss this topic with you. Just a little bit about Andre. He is currently the Chief Resilience Officer and Associate Vice President at the University of Oregon, the Mighty Ducks. Um, and he's got his Oregon pin on, so I just want the audience to know. Uh, but he's had a, a very extensive career uh, in these areas. Um, he was actually the University of Oregon's uh, first Chief Resilience Officer. Uh, and he's very focused on the concept of uh, resilience, community resist, resilience, campus resilience. He's done lots of, of things. He is on the senior leadership team uh, with the president of the University of Oregon, uh, serves on their strategic enterprise risk management committee. Uh, so he's involved in all sorts of matters, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But I think also important, uh, he's the executive director and founder of the Oregon Partnership for Disaster Resilience, uh, which is a statewide activity. And then uh, the thing that uh, we're very interested in and that we'll be featuring uh, at the Governance Leadership Institute uh, is the establishment of the Disaster Resilience Universities Network, uh, which is focused on research and all sorts of matters uh, related to disaster resilience, which are critically important. So again, Andre, thanks for joining us. Thanks for working with us on the Governance Leadership Institute. Uh, for our listeners, I think you should seriously consider attending because this is going to be some very important uh, information and some good ideas about how to make sure your campus is prepared, not only for when things happen, but as we'll talk about in a moment being prepared for what follows, which is probably more important in many regards. So let's just start off, uh, Andre, if you would. Um, the theme of the Governance Leadership Institute, uh, we've titled, as you know, Safeguarding Your College. So uh, based on your experience and the work that you've done, uh, let's focus uh, first on, from your perspective, what do boards need to know 
about planning and imp implementation. It's not just about prevention as we know and responding, but ultimately to secure and recover uh, when events occur, whether they're fires, shootings, and the like. So talk a little bit uh, for the uh, audience about where would you start with boards and what do boards really need to know? Yeah, thanks, Noah. And, and <clears throat> yeah, I think one of the, the key things, and just to kind of unpack a little bit um, as, as a chief resilience officer, this concept of, of resilience and um, understanding um, things need to go beyond just our response capabilities. But honestly, how do we make our, our institutions and organizations um, not only able to survive a crisis, but actually thrive in a world of uncertainty. And the question that you have uh, about what is, you know, what, what is the role of the board or of trustees in this is a really critical one. Because again, as, as a board or trustees, you know, serve a really vital role in kind of the direction of an organization that ties directly to kind of the concept of resilience or sustainability and making sure that they're they're kind of leading um, in a way and directing in a way that is thoughtful about all elements of a crisis or emergency. And again, these can be everyday type occurrences, something as simple as a, a power failure and how that could impact uh, the campus and the viability of the campus for that day or for that week. Um, so those are kind of what I'd consider episodic. And again, the board's role in, in something like that is really kind of being able to ask the questions of, are we prepared for that? What, what do we have in place for that? And again, going beyond just response, uh, but really thinking about the continuity of the academic mission and, and how, how to set that up in a way that you can sustain those minor incidents. And then moving to what would be considered kind of a more extreme incident which unfortunately we've seen on, on campuses around the country, um, which could be a, a mass shooting or a mass homicide. I think the number one part for boards to understand is that the response is the beginning. Um, it is not the end. Uh, we're fortunate that we have a lot of great first responders. Often what we see is as soon as the response phase is kind of concluded, um, the baton is handed back to the leadership of the institution. And that's where we, we find that institutions are, are ill-prepared to take that on. Um, and part of that is they haven't thought through it. Um, and the way that a board can really help in those situations is asking the leadership of that institution the hard questions. You know, not only what are our response capabilities for a myriad of things we might face, but really thinking about what, what are we doing around continuity? What are we thinking about um, if we have to uh, you know, move certain aspects of the campus, which we've seen when, you know, you have wildfires break out or moving beyond just the continuity to recovery. And again, in recovery, dependent upon the peril or the incident you face, that recovery could be something that is in the tune of two months, three months. But again, when we're talking about something that is a traumatic event, we're really actually talking about decades, that there are certain you know, campuses where you just say the name of the campus and the first thing that comes to mind is the event that happened. And for a board to be aware of that, to be able to ask the leadership team, you know, what are we doing? Um, not waiting, um, you know, asking those questions now because a little bit of prevention can go a real long way. And again, the goal around resilience to tie it back to that concept and why I'm a big advocate of that concept is we are always going to face hardships. Um, that could be a budgetary impact, that could be a number of things. The question is, how do we learn from them and how do we actually, again, thrive in the face of adversity? 
That's great. And, you know, I would say we at ACCT um, really learned a lot uh, in the wake of the Umpqua shooting. So let's unpack this a little bit. I like the idea uh, that the response is the beginning, not the end. Uh, talk to us a little bit about, you were one of the first people on the scenes uh, in the wake of the Umpqua shooting, uh, and really on the ground uh, to see what needed to be done. Talk a little bit about, okay, so there was the initial response, right? The police come in, it's a crime scene, uh, they do their work. But what happened in, in the aftermath and what lessons learned uh, can you talk about in terms of this business of resilience? Sure. So, yeah, so we, you know, we're very honored to be able to help UMCLA on, you know, what I would consider any institution's darkest day. Um, one of the things that is fortunate um, uh, for us at the University of Oregon is back in 2008, we had gone down a path of developing a incident management team that is very similar to the type of teams that we use to um, fight wildfires in the West, that it is a team that is trained together, works together, and quite frankly, can be deployed. Um, and so when we uh, you know, heard the news that, um, that the tragedy had happened down at Umqua, um, our team does not self-deploy, but we made it uh, aware to you know, state police and Oregon Emergency Management that we were available and ready to go. Um, and so we were able to work through the, the channels and were actually able to connect with Vanessa Becker, who was the chair of uh, the Umqua Community College um, Board of Trustees at the time, um, asked if they needed our assistance. Um, they said yes. Uh, so when we deployed, one of the first things that we do when we, we deploy on a scene is what we consider, consider kind of a situational assessment or situational size up to kind of determine where things are at. And the, the best way to kind of um, articulate what, what we see in these types of incidents and, and something that I've, I've talked to at a number of conferences um, since this is to really kind of consider it, um, I'm going to use the example of a tsunami, that there's a series of waves that come in. And so that first wave is the response wave. And so by the time that we had arrived, um, you're correct that effectively you're dealing with a crime scene. Uh, it's under the control of the state police. Um, the institution actually has very little say, um, actually no say um, or control over that scene, which creates a, a problem in the sense of thinking about how you restart the campus because until the crime scene is, is you know, finished and processed, you are going to need to, you know, kind of uh, deal with the fact that you can't get on campus. Yeah, if, Andre, if I could just interject, I think that was one of the, the, the first important lessons, I think, for Umqua and I want the listeners to understand is that when something like that happens, you're not in control. That the police take over, it is a crime scene, uh, you are a bystander at that point. But not to interrupt you, but I think that leads to other things in the resilience recovery. Exactly, that often what happens is again in that response phase, because again, you, know, you hope that these, never, these types of incidents never happen. Um, but when they do, having kind of some basic knowledge of how things are going to roll out. And again, I want to really emphasize that we have amazing um, first response uh, capabilities around the country. And, and UMQA was no different in the sense of within minutes having law enforcement officials um, on the campus addressing the threat, taking care of those types of issues is great. However, the leadership, again, 
did not realize that they would not be able to get back on campus. So simple things like being able to connect to their servers that ran their website, they had no access to that. They had no access to anything that was uh, outward facing to convey you know, what was going on on campus because they had been removed. And so those are the types of things that actually move beyond kind of that response capability um, into what I consider kind of the continuity aspect. And it's critical that leaders of, you know, uh, institutions understand that, again, response, police, fire, EMS are going to show up and they're going to do their job. They're well-trained. They're going to do that. The part that I see that we, you know, kind of following that tsunami wave concept, that that first wave is going to be fast, it's going to be intense, and you will not have control over it. Um, but in some respects, that's good because the people that are trained to address that are the ones that are going to take that control. What you really need to be thinking about is how do you set yourself up for that secondary wave? And the secondary wave is what I consider continuity, and that's academic continuity, that's research continuity, um, that's personal care, that while you have the first responders doing what they need to do on campus, really the leadership initiative for, for the campus is to get ready for the second wave. It actually, if you utilize that time, it allows you to kind of work in parallel uh, to start addressing issues. And again, those issues are going to be short-term in the continuity side of anywhere from two to three weeks. Um, in the case of Umqua, it was really looking at student care, looking at the whole campus, and actually, quite frankly, the whole community had experienced significant trauma. So making sure that the, the needs of the community are there, but also understanding and making it very clear to the community that you're, you're coming back, that you will uh, survive this, you will honor those who unfortunately lost their lives, but the best thing you can do is kind of look at how do we bring some sense of continuity to the process um, and kind of moving, moving things forward. And so in those first few days, quite frankly, the key is to allow first responders to do what they need to do while you're preparing to effectively take that baton over and deal with that secondary wave and making sure that leadership is speaking with unity of purpose and a unified voice. Um, often what we think of in these types of crisis is we think about law enforcement and police and EMS, um, but there is a really critical role that leaders need to play in, in kind of messaging out that they're aware of what's going on and they're looking forward on how to move things forward. And UMCO in, in a lot of respects was a really good example of how you can work that in the sense that the first three to four days, all of the press conferences were held by the, by the sheriff. Um, initially, the president of, of the community college and the board of trustees um, were part of some of those conversations, but they allowed the responders to take that lead. And that's critical because then that allows the leadership team to start focusing on continuity. And what was um, a really nice transition of kind of power and kind of control was towards the end of the first week that holding a press conference that showed you know, members of the cabinet of the leadership team talking about the future, talking about where we're going to go so that you can kind of start to paint uh, a picture for people that we will move forward, which then moves to what I consider the third wave, that once you're moving beyond the continuity, then you're really starting to look at recovery. Um, and when we have large-scale events like this on a campus, it's that aspect of how do you reboot a campus? How do you get everything from your financial aid um, going again to uh, students coming back on, reincorporating them, or what we like to say, taking back the campus, you know, so that they feel safe and secure in those environments. 
And just to kind of you know put a, a kind of a, a, a note on this, uh, in 2016 we did the first ever national needs assessment survey for higher education across the country. Uh, and some of the data that we received, we weren't really shocked, but it does tell us of how much work we have to do. That effectively we just were asking campuses um, a series of questions about what types of plans they had in place. And um, we were actually a little shocked that <clears throat> numbers for response were not higher than than what they were. There was 83% of the respondents stated that they have an emergency operations plan, which is good. My hope would be that that would be at 100%. Where we saw the cliff was as soon as we started you know, looking at the data around continuity and recovery, we dropped down to less than 30%. And this was just a binary, meaning do you have it, do you not? Meaning it was not really looking at um, the aspect of how good that plan is, are you exercising that plan? But that speaks to when, when tragedy happens or a crisis happens on your campus, again, response is generally where we focus. When the reality is from a leadership team's perspective, you really need to be looking at how are you going to maintain critical operations and how are you going to reboot or look at your long-term recovery. So we have a lot of work to do in those areas, and that's where I applaud ACCT and kind of you know pushing this to, to leadership initiatives of you're not alone, meaning the data shows that we have work to do. The key is we just need to get started. Hey, I just want to take a second to remind everyone that ACCT's GLI is happening March 11th through 13th, 2019 at Portland Community College in Oregon. This is an opportunity for boards and presidents to learn about key legal, regulatory, and policy issues associated with safeguarding college campuses with respect to natural disasters, violence on campus, and more. For more information, go to www.acctgli.org to register. The deadline to receive discounted hotel rate is January 31st, 2019. I couldn't agree more, and I appreciate the comment. I mean, obviously, our job at ACCT is to get boards to understand and think through these to know what questions to ask. Let's talk a little bit about this concept of rebooting. So we were talking mostly uh, up to now about UMQA, mm -hmm. which had to deal with a shooter on campus. And while it was a human tragedy, it was not an institutional tragedy from the standpoint that the institution the infrastructure, the physical buildings, the campus uh, did not sustain any significant damage. But, you know, as we think about the past two years, for example, in our world, uh, with the hurricanes, the flooding, uh, most recently this past fall, the wildfires um, and uh, flooding and mudslides, uh, we had uh, one of our institutions uh, in the Pacific was all but destroyed uh, by a typhoon, one of the, the strongest typhoons ever recorded in that area. Um, what do you do in terms of the reboot when the actual campus is partially or in some cases almost virtually destroyed? It's a very good question and one that, you know, takes very careful thought, but as far as putting into some certain parameters, and this is where, again, there's a lot of work to be done, that when we think about continuity, and so the examples of continuity that we often turn to um, from our partners at you know, DHS, uh, Department of Homeland Security, or FEMA, is around governance continuity, which is important 
important. But when we're thinking about it from a higher education standpoint, we're really looking at academic continuity and research continuity. And so there's kind of three key things that you need to ask yourself. And again, you want to be asking yourself these questions before the typhoon, before the earthquake, before the wildfire. What would I do if I don't have my people? What would I do if I don't have my place? And what would I do if I don't have my data? So I'm a big fan of keeping things simple. But if you start to ask those questions, then around those questions, you can start to frame out, okay, well, let's say that we you know, had a major malfunction with one of our data uh, centers and we didn't have access to the data. How would we handle that? Are we mirroring our data somewhere? Do we have it backed up someplace? Um, and then you know, if we move that to people, and again, people doesn't, it doesn't have to be a big and, and bad um, event. Uh, we, we saw this in 2008 with H1N1 and the sense of what happens if 50% of your, your workforce population or your students are unable to come to campus. And then asking what would be what we call coping mechanisms that we, you would do. Are you looking at ways that you basically can suspend certain aspects of the term? Um, the other thing that's really critical in, in any post-secondary institution is when this happens. I can tell you as a uh, campus that runs trimesters that having an impact in the first couple weeks of the trimester is very, very different than having an impact during finals or middle. And so that's where when you're asking those three questions, the other thing is kind of where did this happen in the term? Um, and then the, so people and then place. And so that's a, a biggie on, on place is, you know, what happens if a building burns down or a facility burns down? And again, the questions that you have to ask is what is in that building? So I know that, you know, so if that is just purely instructional space, you know, do you have cooperative agreements with other uh, venues within the community that, you know, we always joke, we have a very beautiful open campus that if it's a, you know, a spring term, well, we can teach certain classes outside. Um, but if we're talking about a wet lab or if you're talking about a technical lab, um, we can't really move those things. Uh, and so it's then kind of thinking through the process of how you would, would address that. But again, to bring it home, the, the key questions, and when I think of kind of boards and presidents of kind of asking their leadership teams, the simple, simple is better. What would we do if we don't have our people? What would we do if we don't have our places? And what would we do if we didn't have our data? And if you start there and start with a simple conversation, the simple conversations can actually lead to some significant things. There's another component, and I've been an incident commander for most of my professional life, and that often when we talk about kind of data and people become overwhelmed in the sense of, oh my, I, I don't know how we would handle that. There is kind of a mindset fix by just having those discussions, even as part of a board meeting or a cabinet meeting, you're actually starting to get people's muscle memory in their brain to think about, oh, we don't have that capability. And so half of the, when I do a situation size up, when I'm rolling into an incident, the first thing that I wanna know is what I have and what I don't have. Because what I don't wanna be doing is spending time trying to address something where I don't have the capability to do it. Because then I can pivot to basically say, okay, I don't have that, but do I have a network? That's another key concept of resilience that we'll be talking about at the, at the Leadership Academy around organizational resilience. A key element of organizational resilience is establishing really solid networks and partnership. And often we see this when you lose a building, you know, if in, in the moment you're trying to find a new location, that's really difficult and you lose time. Whereas you have those pre-established that if we lost this building, we have a relationship with another facility where we can just move. And the key is time. How, how fast can you cut, cut down kind of the, the time loss? So thinking about the people thing, so for example, we had a, uh, an institution in Northern California 
fairly recently, where the campus was not directly impacted by the wildfire, but a significant number of their faculty and students lost their homes. So what do you do in those instances? I mean, I guess I'm raising it to your point that these are the things people don't tend to think about, but I was struck by your, uh, your kind of rubric of the three things and people being one. So what do you do when your people have been affected off campus and maybe are now homeless, uh, their lives are disrupted, they've lost their possessions, don't have access uh, even presumably to uh, laptops or other things they might have used for instructional use? What do you do in those instances? Those are difficult. Um, and again, the, the key is that people is what makes our institutions. And so I always say people first, that you have to take care of the people. And so, again, having those hard discussions of at what point are you saying that, you know, we've lost this term or, you know, these classes are not going to proceed and then maximum flexibility. I know for our own institution, just even severe weather events, we've had you know, some very interesting weather over the last three years that happens to descend every week of finals. And, and so in working with the provost's office of making sure that um, we're giving a lot of latitude to our faculty members to um, you know, be able to move some of the dates around on when grades need to be put in, um, how tests are proctored, uh, things like that, but tying it back to a declaration. And this is a key because we have policies and procedures in place for reasons um, and for academic rigor. And so, again, another area that, you know, I, I ask a lot of uh, leadership on campuses, do you have a simple process of declaring a, an emergency? Um, because if you are, and I mean, most of our institutions have this that give us leeway for purchasing. That if you're a public institution, you know, if we declare an emergency at the University of Oregon, that allows me um, and the CFO of the university to go out and procure what we need underneath that, that declaration. I would say be thinking about the same thing, that what, what does that mean if all of a sudden you, you lose a term? And I mean, you don't have to think that far out because if you look at what happened to UNO and Tulane and after uh, Katrina and how many students were displaced and just kind of ran to the hills and the same thing of the faculty members, everybody's recovering. So it's, again, situational awareness. If you know that you can't efficiently get things up, really think about take the time to get them up in a systematic way so that you're not, one, burning people out, because, again, people first, and realizing that if a tragedy befalls an individual, their family's going to come first. They're going to take care of their own um, needs. And so I think as institutions, we need to think about how do we help take care of them. An example I can share from the University of Oregon standpoint that we run an incident management team. Um, I have small children, and majority of the people on our team have small children. The expectation is, is if we have an earthquake or a large catastrophic event, you're bringing your family with us. That effectively we have to think of it as a community. If you have not um, seen the documentation uh, at a University of Canterbury, one, the report is just titled great, shaken but not stirred, um, after their earthquake in 2010. Uh, it really speaks to these factors of you had dedicated staff that were literally running out the door to get in their car to get to campus to make sure things were okay, and then pausing and going, oh, wait, what about my family? Right. You know, so there are these trade-offs, and it doesn't mean that they have to be mutually exclusive, but to really be thinking through that. Uh, but also maximum flexibility. Um, and 
yeah, wildfire case um, where you, whether it's smoke or if your campus is in a zone where they're needing to do staging, you really need to kind of just, again, have those discussions of if this happens at this type of the time of the term, what does that mean? The other thing is understanding that our students are transient. They're only going to be with us for two years or a four-year school for four years. And so that interruption, you may want to be looking at, do you have partnership relationships with other institutions that can absorb them for a certain period of time? But what you don't want to do is repeat what we've seen with other events where they never come back. But I can tell you, and again, back to the people, how you treat them is what they're going to remember. Um, not what you did, but how you treat them and how you made them feel. So even if they weren't able to matriculate through your institution, but you were able to help them achieve their objective, uh, they're going to remember that. Well, that's an excellent point. And I would just tell the boards and presidents who are listening that gets to reputation of institutions and credibility. And so I don't care if you're an elected or appointed official, but I presume you care a lot about how you are perceived and how actions are perceived throughout the community and the standing of your institution long term. I do want to get to one other area. I know that you and I have talked about it. I know that we're going to feature this also at the Governance Leadership Institute uh, this March in Portland. Uh, you talked a lot about uh, crime scenes and losing control and natural disasters, which obviously uh, you don't control those either. Um, but let's talk about the issue of concealed carry and guns on campus. So this has become, as you know, a huge issue uh, for a number of our institutions. So states and others are passing laws over which campuses have no control, but now they have to deal with it. And I know there's been a lot of hand-wringing about this issue in terms of, well, how do we actually safeguard our campuses? Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, your experience and what you know in terms of how best to deal with this issue of concealed carry? And also maybe a little bit about the, the town gown issue. In other words, you may be able to restrict uh, students and faculty from carrying, but if a citizen of the community has a legitimate right to carry and walks on campus. Is there anything that can be done uh, to anticipate or, or make sure that uh, students are safe? Yeah, it, it definitely is a, a topic of concern. Um, one of our partner organizations, the National Center for Campus Public Safety, uh, did a, a forum on concealed carry uh, a couple of years ago. And I think there are more questions than answers um, in the sense that you're you're uh, addressing kind of civil liberties, constitutional uh, requirements. Um, but to your point, in the sense of the, the spaces that you control, um, you, you do have the right to control them. And so really looking at the policies and procedures that you have on your campus about having a safe space. Um, and if you have a policy where guns are not allowed on campus, that making sure that that's very clear and articulated, regardless of whether you know somebody has a concealed carry permit, um, uh, an example I always like to point out to, again, I, you know, prior to being an administrator at the University of Oregon, I, I ran um, an applied research center. You mentioned the Oregon Partnership for Disaster Resilience, and we worked with all 36 counties um, in the state of Oregon. And Oregon is a, is a very diverse, um, you know, uh, state. And I always enjoyed working with Eastern Oregon counties. And one of the things that you would see when you walked into county facilities was, you know, signs to check your gun. Um, so again, that it's a reality that we live in, 
but it's also um, something that we as institutions need to think about how and what we can control, um, you know, where we will not be able to control it. And you had mentioned the, the point about if you have that right within your state uh, to carry, that's fine. It's once you're on our campus or in our premise, uh, premises, whether that be buildings or whatnot, really making sure your policies are tight. And it's also another area that, again, I think that it's, it's about the, the questions that boards can ask of their institutions. Meaning, asking the simple question of what are our policies and procedures as it relates to concealed carry on our campus? Do you fully understand that? Have you had your general counsels look at it to see what you can and cannot do? And then there's an element of, of control. And again, I think that right now we're very uh, divided um, in the sense of, of thinking about um, you know, concealed carry. And we have certain audiences that think that if, if people had more guns, they would be able to prevent, um, you know, horrible active shooter type situations. The reality, and I can only speak from you know somebody that oversees a law enforcement agency, that anybody with a gun during an incident is a threat. And law enforcement officials are trained to neutralize threats. Um, they do not delineate or know and aren't going to be asking for your concealed carry permit. And actually, you've seen this with um, a number of events, meaning there are a lot of really good, responsible gun owners out there that will first and foremost say that in an active event, they will not be pulling their gun because they understand that by pulling the gun, all of a sudden they are potentially seen as, as the threat. And I can tell you that officers do not want to have to, you know, hurt people. Um, and, and so there's just more confusion. But that, that clarity of what your policies and procedures are for your facilities is really important and is something that you should be checking on um, a pretty regular basis to make sure it aligns with what's, what's happening either in your state or, or nationally. Um, again, there is no simple solution to this, but I think having an open and honest discussion that people have the right to bear arms, uh, but institutions also have the right to set policies and procedures for their, their grounds. Well, very good points. I mean, I've been to many campuses in many states, and I always thought it was a little disconcerting when I go onto campuses and I see those signs on the doors about no firearms. You think it'd be obvious that there'd be no need for firearms in educational institutions, but obviously in the world that we live in, and of course my colleagues and I who live here in the nation's capital were very familiar, unfortunately, with the need for security and the fact that on any given day there's probably many, many weapons uh, not too far from us in any location in the city. This has been an outstanding conversation, Andre. I want to thank you uh, for sharing some time with us, for working with us on the Governance Leadership Institute. Uh, I do want to let the listeners know if they're interested in the Governance Leadership Institute, they can find out more uh, about the event on our website, www.acctgli.org. Uh, and I hope they take advantage of that. We're, uh, I think, planning an excellent program. I think Andre would agree. Uh, and I, I do want to give you another shout out for uh, working with us to program that. And I'm sure we'll be talking again. But Andre, any closing thoughts? Just appreciate the opportunity. And again, I compliment uh, ACCT for pushing this initiative. It's critical that we get our presidents and especially our boards um, more engaged in the discussion and having these types of discussions helps so that they understand what their role is and how they can help make our campuses more safe and resilient now and into the future. So again, I appreciate the time. 
Well, amen to, the, amen to that, and uh, thank you again for joining us. And this concludes this edition of ACCT In The Know. Thank you. For more information about Andre and the GLI, please visit www.acctgli.org. We'll see you next week.